Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Hanging in there? Good. Um, gosh, those songs. Those are redemptive, and uh, we're going to need it here in a minute because we're talking about marriage. So uh, <clears throat> the reality is that uh, the Bible talks about all manner of things, and one of those things is marriage and how husbands and, husbands and wives are supposed to live. Um, it's a great gift, really, to be able to uh, teach through the Word of God. It's a, it's a gift for Trev and I because we get to, to come up here and wrestle with the Word and all of our inadequacies and all of the ways that we fail and we, we wrestle with God and we wrestle with his word and we just receive his grace and mercy and walk forward in it. It's a gift for us because we don't have to make up really fun stuff for you guys. We just teach through the Bible and uh, trust him for the rest. It's a great gift for, uh, for all of us because the, the truth is that the word of God has everything that we need to live an abundant life here and now in the few short years that we get to live by faith. Um, the word equips us for that. And we sit under the, sit under the word and we're, our minds are transformed and our hearts are <clears throat> conformed to the heart of God. And we're equipped to uh, truly live a life of love, to live a life worthy of the calling that we've been called. Uh, live a life that's worthy of the gospel. You know, this book of Ephesians was written a very long time ago to a very diverse group of people. Um, people like us who have different you know, backgrounds, different heritages, different... Uh, socioeconomic statuses, we're, we're different, we're varied. Uh, it was written to uh, Jews and Gentiles, husbands and wives, men and women, children, fathers, mothers. It was written to people who work and people who uh, employ people. It was written to everybody. It was written to the church. It was written to believers. And in a very real way, it's written to us because um, we are part of the body of Christ. And so this message is it comes to us today, even though we're talking about husbands and wives, and you may be thinking, I'm not married the message is still for us, and we're going to see why here in a second, because the, the reality is that the gospel is bigger than marriage, and, um, but marriage is deeply important to God, and so we're going to dig into some of why that is. We're going to be finishing up this passage, speaking to wives and husbands, uh, finishing up chapter 5, and then uh, next week we're going to kick off chapter 6, and before we read, we'll be in verses 028 or so through the end of the chapter. Before we do that, let's pray and ask the Lord to, uh, to help us. So, Lord, we do love you this morning, and thank you that we can sing the songs of the redeemed, that you uh, do the impossible, that you restore, that you redeem, that where there is no way, you find a way, that when we are pressed up against the sea and our enemy is behind us and there is no way out, that you part the sea and we can walk through on dry land. You are the God who does the impossible every day. And so we come to you because... We need you to do impossible things. We need you to restore marriages. We need you to restore relationships between parents and children. We need you to resurrect our lives. We need you to empower us to uh, love well. We need you to empower us to raise children who love the Lord and to be children who love their parents. And we need you to empower us to share the gospel, to seek and to save the lost, to make disciples. Lord, help us. We need your help. And we ask for you to teach us as we walk through the word today. Teach us more of what you've created marriage to be, what it symbolizes. <clears throat> Lord, may we end in a place of hope, overwhelmed with your grace, that you are able to do all things, and that this whole mess is not, uh, of life is not built upon our capacity, but on your immense wonder and glory and grace. So help us to remember that, Lord Jesus. In your risen name we pray. 
Amen. Um, okay, so here we go. I'm going to actually start in verse 25 because it kind of gives the context and it's going to roll into things. And uh, here we go. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ is the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, we've been to a marriage conference, you read a marriage book. Chances are you've read those verses. And so obviously in the context of those things, really in chapter 5, the beginning, he starts to be imitators of God, and then he starts explaining what that looks like. And now he's talking about how does that get lived out within the marital relationship. So obviously he's telling husbands to uh, love your wives, and but when he gets to verse 28, he starts making this comparison of, okay, husbands, you're supposed to love your wives as your own bodies. That you and your, to love your wife is to love yourself. After all, he who loves his wife loves himself. And it's this idea of this oneness that we're going to get into in just a minute. Verse 29, it says, after all, no one ever hated his own body. So the word for hate really means to like detest or it's, it's even a word for to persecute. And it means like malicious unjustifiable feelings, either unilaterally, like toward, I have toward an innocent person, or mutual hatred between two people. Like, this is real life. And he says, no one ever hated his own body. And so you don't have mutual hatred with your body. You don't have a malicious, unjustifiable feelings. If you do, like, you're probably not reading this, or you're probably not sitting here. You're probably dead. And so the reality is that if you're a husband, and you're listening to this, you at least love your body enough to keep it alive up to this point. But what does he say? So he says this idea of no one ever hated his own body. And this, this idea, too, of, of uh, this hatred is really a preference. I prefer me over another person. And it gets manifested in the feeling of hate. But what does he do? He doesn't hate his body, but he does what? It says he feeds and cares for it. So what there for feeds is really to, to nourish up to maturity. It's only used twice in the New Testament. Once here and once in 6.4, talking to, to fathers, we'll get to this soon, uh, bringing them up in the ins, uh, training and instruction of the Lord, to bring them up. It's the same verb. Here it's used uh, to feed. It's an idea of nourishment, like a plant needs, you know, it needs soil, it needs nutrients, it needs water, it needs sunlight, and all these things in order to flourish, in order to grow up into the maturity that it was designed to have. So husbands, they feed their own bodies, and they cherished, so not cherished, what does he say? Uh, um, cares for. So cherish. Other versions say cherish. And the reason is because the root word for that means, uh, is a root word for, for warmth. And it comes from this picture of, of a, a, a bird covering her eggs with her feathers to hold in this warmth, to have this protective, spreading protective warmth over the eggs, Okay to protect them from a penetrating and destructive cold that would come in and keep the eggs from developing like they're supposed to. So you have these husbands uh, who feeds and cares for his body. And if he just said that, we'd be like, this is great. But then he says, just as Christ does the church. And so he rolls this, this beautiful picture in of Christ loving the church by feeding, nourishing her to maturity and providing her with this 
uh, spreading, protective, tender love that guards her from the destructive cold of the world. Do you see? So this idea of feeding and caring is not just what the husband does, but it is what Christ does for the church. And then he goes on to say, um, for we are members of his body. So when he says, just as Christ does the church, this word in this beautiful picture of Ephesians that we've gotten, and we're going to get into this word body here in just a second, is for how that's played out throughout this book. But you have Christ right here, and when it says church, uh, the word, uh, it's this, the, the concept is all the universal believers. So like us here in Oklahoma City, the Vine Community Church, anyone who claims Christ as their Savior, believers, it's the, the makeup of all believers throughout history. That Christ has fed them, he has cared for them, he has nourished them up to maturity with this warm, sacrificial, protective love. And it says, for we are members of his body. So this idea of body, your version might say um, in verse... Um, 29, which says, after all, no one ever hated his own body. Your, your version there may say flesh. The real word there is flesh, like, like the physical flesh and bone. But the word there for body, where it says uh, uh, we are his church and members of his body, is, is the word soma. And it's a little bit of a different word. And it's the word used a couple times here in the book of Ephesians. If you run back with me and we kind of trace that thread through here, in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, tracing this concept of Christ's body. It says, and God placed all things under his, Christ's feet, and appointed him, Christ, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, Soma, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So in a very mysterious way, the, the body of Christ, the church, is a manifestation of the fullness of Christ here on earth, which is mind-blowing. It'll make you think about all kinds of things. But this idea that Christ is the head and the church is his body. If you keep reading and through chapter 2, through the glories of chapter 2, remember this, this picture of Jews and Gentiles, that they were separate and there was this great dividing wall between them and Christ and made them into one. Well, in 2.14, he says this, For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. I'll remember this from, I don't even know how many weeks ago when we went through this. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself, pay attention here, in himself one new man out of the two. One new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So he's making the one, the Jew and the Gentile, the separate, those who were divided by all these things, He's, his purpose was to create in himself one new person, or excuse me, one new man in one body. So you have two groups made into one body. And in doing so, reconciling both of them to the cross. So that the body of Christ, the church, is like the, is the earthly manifestation of God's reconciliation of humanity to himself. It's pretty deep. And so when he comes in here and he says, we are members of his body, this is what he's talking about. He has this idea of we're, we're separate individual members, like a body is made up of lots of parts. Paul will talk about that in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But we're this body made up, and then uh, we're these two groups made into one. He talks at the end of chapter 2 about us being a building or a holy temple that are joined together, different parts for one body, one building. And so this idea of two becoming one is a really beautiful picture of what the church is. And then he sort of hammers it home here when he hits um, the next verse, which is 31 here, back in chapter 5. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become 
one flesh. He's quoting there Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which is before the fall. And you have this, chapter 1 is this uh, general overview of creation, God creating this uh, order out of chaos. And in chapter 2, it focuses in on humanity as those who are made in God's image. And chapter 2 ends with a wedding. It ends with God looking at Adam and saying it's not good that he's alone. And so he creates Eve to, to help him to uh, uh, run this world that he's been given dominion over. And then they have a marriage, and he's like, uh, and he says, this, is, this is, explains what marriage is. And then, boom, we have the fall in chapter 3, and the rest of the Bible is the redemptive story of God fixing everything that we messed up. But in, in Matthew chapter 19, I want to jump back here to what Jesus says, because he quotes this same passage here in Genesis 2. And it's important for a couple reasons. So this is Matthew 19, oh, verse 4, 19, 4 through 6. So the Pharisees have come up to Jesus and, of course, they're trying to trick him or test him. And they ask a question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? By the way, same question. We get the same question today. So nothing new under the sun. And Jesus' answer is, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus, you have this picture in Genesis of there's the created order, and then out of that created order, God puts uh, man and wife together, and then sin comes in and breaks everything. And then the redemptive arc of God redeeming his creation to himself. And then Jesus comes along here in Matthew 19, and they're asking him questions, and he's like, hey, in the beginning... God made them male and female, and then he brought them together so that the two would become one flesh. And that it's so important to God that he says what, that I have put it together, so don't separate it. Anybody been to a wedding, even a marginally uh, uh, religious wedding at all, has this kind of stuff in there. And when you ask, why is it that the church holds such a high view of marriage? Well, it's because God holds a high view of marriage. He, has it, he holds marriage as high as the reality that he is the creator. It's on that same level. This is what Jesus says. The creator made them male and female, which is a sidebar I'm not going to jump into right now, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. And then... Paul, look at verse 32, he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. The word for mystery there is not like, um, you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000, or it's not like a mystery dinner, you know, where you go and you dress up in costume and try to figure out who did it. The mystery is this concept of something that is covered and is then unveiled. And so you have throughout uh, history, and he's talked about this great mystery in the book of Ephesians as well, uh, this great mystery that the, the, the gospel was for the Jews and the Gentiles as well. And God is uh, progressively revealing his plan throughout the Bible. Well, one of his plans, as we're getting revealed here in the book of Ephesians, is that from the beginning, God created marriage. He created this institution between one man and one woman to be joined in this union that is rebroken by death, right? And so he creates that before the world falls, and he calls it good and perfect. But he created it in part so that it would point to how Christ loves the church. 
You see how important that is? That God brought about the institution of marriage and is as he's brought about all these other uh, um, images and metaphors of ways to explain what the body of Christ is, the sort of the ultimate one here that he leaves us with, and he, he brings uh, kind of at the height of all of it, is boom, the best picture of how Christ loves his church is supposed to be a man loving his wife. Whew. And it's heavy. It's really heavy. And he says this is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ in the church. He is revealing to us the weight of the glory that he has put into the marital union. It's really, really important. I want to pause here for a second because with that weight probably comes a whole lot of, well, great. Here he goes. This marriage is great. God's mouth is perfect self. Well, you know what, Brandon? Guess what? Our marriage isn't perfect. I know. I promise. Mine isn't either. There is no perfect marriage, Period. That does not exist on planet Earth. There is no perfect anything but Jesus. Whatever shame you might be feeling, whatever doubt you might be feeling, whatever uh, worry or grief or, or any of the feelings that you're feeling, I want to pour God's grace over all of it. Why is Paul writing these things? It's because he knows husbands and wife are going to struggle. He knows that wives are going to struggle to submit to their husbands. He knows that husbands are going to struggle to love their wives. He knows that wives are going to struggle to respect their husbands. Any man who would say, I do not struggle to love my wife like Jesus loves the church is the most arrogant fool I've ever heard of. We are given a task that is absolutely impossible except for the empowering presence of Christ in us. This is the gospel. The reason that the church or excuse me, the reason that, the, that, the, that a marital union can look like the church is because of the power of the gospel. It's not because you and I can do it right. It's because in all of our incapacity, Christ can fill us with the Spirit and empower us to do the impossible. That's the story of redemption. You and I will live in eternity in absolute holy blamelessness. If you just read back up, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water with the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That includes every husband and every wife. Christ is washing all of us. He is sanctifying us and making us like him. And one of the primary processes for him doing that is through the marital union. Why? Because it requires you to die to yourself. It requires the husband to give himself up for his wife. It requires the wife to give herself up to the husband. It's the reason that it's hard is because we don't like to die to ourselves. People ask me all the time, like, why is marriage hard? And I'm like, because we're all terrible people. That's why marriage is hard, because it reveals all my terribleness. It's not hard because, yes, life is hard, bad things happen, blah, blah, blah. But marriage is hard, and parenting is hard because I'm a terrible human. I, I am, and if you don't think you are a terrible human, I just you need to read the Bible more, because you are. We're all terrible humans, every single one of us. There is, everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we have hope in the gospel. So I want to just pause there before we go on. Don't be discouraged, okay? The whole point of this thing is I wanna, we want to leave you in a place of hope. So this mystery is revealed, is revealed um, and, uh, and then... The reality is that in, the, in a marriage, God can, he reveals, 
it's this, this unified love of the triune God gets demonstrated through the relationship of two broken people loving each other impossibly well. The redemptive story of Christ gets laid out for everybody to see. It's a very public thing a marriage is. And so it's this redemptive act and a redemptive action of a lover, God, toward his beloved people. You see that? And we're going to look at uh, there in just a second what that, some more of what that looks like. Okay. So he says, this is a profound mystery. However, each one of you must also love his wife. He goes from general, husbands love your wives, or wives submit your husbands, to this very specific, however, each one of you must love his wife. It's like, yes, you, Carl, you have to love your wife. It's not just, you're like, well, maybe he's talking to everybody but me. No. Each one of you must love his wife. Do you have a wife? Yes. Then you must love her. The word translated must for there in older versions is translated ought. This idea of oughtness, which is kind of an antiquated word, like you ought to. It means that you, you owe it to her. You owe it to your wife to love her. Why? Because every single wife has an inherent right to be loved and to be tenderly and warmly cherished and cared for. Every wife has that inherent right. So if you're her husband, you owe it to her to love her. And then it's almost as an aside. It's not an aside. But he's like, and, uh, or as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's kind of like, oh, scribble, 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 move on, children, obey your parents, right? So um, the word for respect, now don't laugh as I say this. So the word for respect, if you have an older version, is going to say fear. And the reason it says fear is because the, the Greek word is the same root word that we get the word phobia from. <laughs> so this idea that a wife must uh, respect her husband, it's an idea of this of reverential fear. So the husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church, and the wife responds in like reverential awe of her husband. <laughs> so I'm laughing because it's a little silly. Because if you're if you're a husband, you realize I'm not worthy of any reverential anything of any kind whatsoever. And if Paul was just talking about two people, it would be silly. But remember, it's this profound mystery. He's talking about Christ and the church. How is the church supposed to respond to Jesus? Well, we walk in obedience to him. He loves us perfectly. We just sang a song about it. Now I get to love you back. Now I get to love you in return. Christ loves us no matter what we do. And we get to respond to him in, in just reverential delight, right? We get to submit to our Savior, and it's a delight and it's a joy. We get to look to Christ and point out how wonderful he is. And I think, I'm taking a bit of liberty here, is that as a husband loves his wife, as Christ loves the church, she can then turn and look at him and say, man, my husband's awesome. And that's a pretty cool dynamic going on. I think most wives here would think, man, you know, I have a husband who is loving me with this, who's like nourishing me and giving me an environment in which I can grow in my sanctification in Jesus. I can grow in grace and truth. He creates a home where I can do that. And he nourishes me and he loves me with this protective, warm, nurturing affection. Well, that sounds pretty good if I'm a wife. And for a husband to say, man, if I love my wife and she, in turn, she respects me and looks to me and says, I will follow you where you go. Okay, that'll work. Now, obviously, Paul's writing this stuff because we don't do this well and we struggle with it. 
But this is the picture that he said. This is the ideal. So don't get tripped up by your failure to live up to the ideal. Otherwise, I would never read the Bible. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, I don't do that very well. When he says, just list the things in this book that we've read so far. I do all these things very poorly. It's one of the hard things about getting up here and talking about it is because I have to confess, I don't love Jenny like Christ loves the church. I don't think I ever have. I've tried and I do love her, but man, it is mostly mistakes. And there's a lot of I'm sorry's and there's a lot of I'm going to do betters and there's a lot of Lord help me's, okay? Okay. The word love, if you kind of mark it through there, and one of the rules of Bible study is when you see something repeated, it's important. So pay attention. From 25 through 33, at least in the version I'm reading from here, the verb love is repeated seven times. Seven times, just those few verses. And it's the word agape, which is this um, deep, constant, faithful love that God has for us. This agape love, this God's love toward us. And it is one that is always demonstrated in action. So like if you'll flip with me to 1 John chapter 4. I usually flip past the little first second. They're small, especially like first second, second John, that's tiny. Okay, here we go. 1 John 4 says this. Now, John is talking to believers uh, generally, okay? So this applies to all of us. In verse 8, 1 John 4, 8, says this, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love, which makes sense that if God is giving a picture of the gospel that one of the members is supposed to love, right? They're both supposed to love, obviously. But he says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love is always God's love, agape love, this love, a love for a husband to a wife is always demonstrated in action. It's not just words. can't just be words. If God had repeated infinitely to the world, I love you, and never sent Jesus to die as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, we would still be dead in our sins and without hope in the world. But he sent his son. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So when it says the word love, which it is repeated seven times here, how husbands love their wives and how Christ loves the church, it is this idea of this deep, constant action love that always acts on the behalf of the beloved. All right, so what do we do with some of these things? I wanted to uh, ask a series of questions, first to husbands and then to wives, and then kind of encourage everybody at the end here. So, husbands, I'm going to start with you first because I'm a husband, and this passage is mostly directed to husbands, and I tend to be hard on husbands and super easy on the wives, so um, because I'm a husband and I am married to a wonderful woman, so I try to keep it that way. But the idea uh, is this. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, husband, and I'm also asking myself, and the answers are sometimes hard. First question is, is your wife thriving? Is she thriving? Now, the idea of thriving comes from this, uh, this feeding and caring that we get, this picture that we get of, of nourishing up to maturity, of protecting with this warm, protective love. Is she in an environment where she can thrive and grow into the woman that God has called her to be? If she's not thriving... It is your responsibility to make sure that she gets into a place where she can. 
Do you hear me? It's not your responsibility to make her thrive, okay? It's not your responsibility to sit down and like open the Bible for her and give her a pen and be like, have a quiet time so you can thrive. So no, that's not what I'm saying. Please, please. that is not how God is with us, right? That is not, if you think that that's how God is with us, your concept of God is totally broken and you need to go to the word and repent. God is so tender with us. He is so gentle. He is so gracious. He is so forgiving. He is so patient. His loving kindness never ends. So how you love your wife needs to be displayed in what is actually going on. Is she thriving? And if she is not, full stop, you need to dedicate your life to making sure that she can. That may mean the rest of your life here on earth. You may be like, you know, I'm doing everything I can good. Be encouraged. Don't stop doing good. Create a place where your wife can thrive. Why? Because that is how Jesus loves you. That is how Jesus loves the church. And as you do that for your wife, the world will be able to see the light of the gospel pour out of your marriage. Is your wife thriving? Second question. Do you make it easy to respect you? It is way harder to respect a pompous, arrogant jerk. It is. If you've ever had a boss who's a jerk, man, it's hard. Or a teacher, or a principal, or name, whatever. Anybody in your life who you're supposed to respect, when they're a jerk, it's really hard. She has been commanded to respect you and to submit to you, husbands. Would you please make it easy on her? Be the kind of man that's easy to respect. And you know what? I want you to risk just sitting down and asking your wife if you do that. Ask her these questions. Sit down. I may ruin lunch for you, but sit down at lunch today and be like, maybe not at lunch today, but at some point soon, and just ask each other these, because wives, I've got some questions for you. And so ask each other these questions. Open up a dialogue. Like, dig into this thing. Husbands, do you make it easy to respect you? Honestly, are you being a responsible man? Are you managing your own life well? Jesus was not a colossal mess. He was an ordered, perfect man. I am not a perfect man. I have, by God's grace, I'm not like I was when I was 12. I was an incomprehensible mess when I was 12. You just have no idea. I was a mess. And by God's grace, I'm growing as a man. Are you, are you growing? Are you making progress? Are you ordering your own life so that you can lead her well? If you're a giant mess, it's really hard to follow you because you don't know where you're going. So men, your job is, and I'm gonna, there's an implicit idea of leadership in here. Love leads somewhere. It's not just like, oh, I love you. I'm going to give you flowers. We didn't even sell it very Valentine's Day, mainly because I think it's just kind of dumb. But two, I'm not, you're not going to tell me how to love my wife. I'm going to be a jerk for 364 days and buy her some chocolates and roses. What? Roses are way marked up on there anyway. Don't buy roses around Valentine's Day. But anyway, this idea of love leads. And so you have to lead yourself. You have to manage your own life so that you can lead your wife. And if you're not, brother, you got to get to work. And if you're not doing it well, then you need help. Ask for help. It's not that complicated. God put you in the body on purpose. When your elbow is broken, your knee doesn't make fun of it. 
right? It walks you to the doctor. That's how we're supposed to work. When one of us is hurting, we don't expose the other people's hurt. We get in there and help them. So if you're hurting, and this is going for everybody, if you're struggling, ask for help. Okay, do you make it easy to respect you? All right? Next question is about the quality of your love, because it says, as Christ loves the church. And I was looking at this uh, wonderful commentary, and it talks about the love of Christ for the church is bountiful, elaborate, sympathetic, and practical. Bountiful, elaborate, sympathetic, and practical. So is your love for your wife bountiful? Think about this. How, does, does Christ just kind of dribble love on his church? No, he lavishes love on us. You don't want to have some kind of throttle on your love for your wife. Make it bountiful. Is it elaborate? There are times when the expression of love for a husband to his wife should be extravagant. I mean, ask Tim. Jewelry works, okay? So there's a reason that when you ask the biggest question of this girl's life, will you marry me? You don't just like take her to McDonald's. You buy a ring, man. You like put money on the deal. You're like, I spent all that I had and more that I had, and I am in debt to buy this ring because this, I want something to show you that it's extravagant. Weddings are extravagant. They don't have to be, obviously, but like even a, it's still a big deal, okay? It's still a big deal. Even if it's a, a, a frugal wedding, they're big deals. There is an occasional need for a s- extravagant love. Now, wives, once again, back to you. Please don't require that your husband show you extravagant love all the time. Like, give the guy a break. But there should be some elaborateness to your love for your husband's men. And girls, this has not come to most of us naturally, okay? So give us some grace. We're not always really good at it because we don't speak that language. So, but you need to work to have love that's bountiful, elaborate, sympathetic. Is your love for your wife sympathetic? Do you look to her and think, what does she need? What does my wife need? And then I'm going to go and I'm going to work to provide that need. Now, that need may be utterly ridiculous. I don't know. In which case, you sit and discuss it. You remember you married an adult, so sit and talk to her. But... Your love for her should be sympathetic, not critical. And uh, third and fourth, and this is going to roll into our final question for husbands, is is your love for her practical? Because uh, the fourth question is this. Can your wife see your love or not? Can she see it? I do not care how often you tell your wife you love her. Yes, do that, by the way. I care how much you show your wife that you love her. Remember, God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is love that he sent his one and only son into me in atonement for our sins. I don't care if you tell your wife you love her. I want you to actually love her. Do something. Don't just sit around and blame everybody else that you're a bad husband. Get off your lazy butt and work. It's your job. It is your primary role as a man on this planet, as a husband, to love your wife well. And I mean it. Whatever that looks like, I don't know. It's different. Everybody is different, and every marriage is so complex. We're all so complex. You have these two complex systems coming together. Oh, my gosh, it's hard to figure out what to do. I'm not telling you to love somebody else's wife well, okay? Just yours. Just take this one woman and study her. Become a Ph.D. in your wife so that you know her better than, the only person that should know your wife better is Jesus. That's it. 
And the longer that you're married, you need to know her. Because I guarantee you, fellas, we've been married 22 years. She's a different woman than I married. It is a constant work. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful process. But loving Jenny, I got I to gotta, gotta pivot. She's like, oh, okay, well, that, didn't, that did not work. That, that was not, that did, that did not work this time. So she's like, that's not what I wanted. Why would you think that's what I wanted? I'm like, okay, well, that's, because that's what worked last time. And she's like, no, come on, try again. So it's part of the dance, right? It's part of the dance. It's fun. Uh, I once joked, somebody once told me, they're like, how could you like just love and be with one person for the rest of your life? And I was like, bro, you're doing it wrong. But you kidding me? You're married to a woman. She is this beautiful, complex, amazing thing. It's ever-changing, so get used to the pivot, gentlemen. So um, it's like playing golf, man, right? If you shank one, just turn and hit it again. Just keep, keep going down the course. Just aim toward the right way. Um, but this idea of that she needs to see your love in action does not have to be perfect, guys. It does not. Matter of fact, it can't be perfect. But it can be you saying, okay, sitting down and saying, what do I need to do to love my wife well? But sitting down with her and asking her, honey, I... I struggle to love you well because I'm a human and you're married to a human. How, what does it look like to love you well? She probably knows. She may not know. She might say, honey, I don't know. In which case, you sit down with her and you say, well, let's figure it out together. Let's figure out what it looks like to love you well. How do I create an environment in our home and in your life where you were nurtured and cherished and fed and where you can grow in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do I create that for you? What needs to change? And then... Guys, you get up the next day and you get to work. You do it. You show her that you love her because it does no good for you to just tell her anymore. Just like it, did no good for, it would have done us no good for God to simply tell us that he loved us. He demonstrated it toward us. Okay. Um, is your wife thriving? Do you make it easy to respect her? Is your love bountiful, elaborate, sympathetic, practical? And can she see your love for her? So wives, Two questions, because I had four for guys and half for the husband, the wife, so, because um, I'm, I'm, you know, wading into dangerous territory here. So, wives, do you respect your husband even when he doesn't deserve it? Quick caveat here. Nothing that I am saying is telling you to stay inside a dysfunctional process, okay? Um, there is abuse that happens. And I'm not telling you to respect your husband when he is abusing you, okay? There is manipulation and emotional abuse, and there's all manner of things. If you have a husband who is addicted to whatever, and your marriage is, a, is an absolute disaster uh, because he's abusing you or manipulating you or gaslighting you or whatever, get help. Please get help. Please get help. I'm not going to counsel divorce. I'm going to explain why in a minute. But please get help, okay? A ask. Ask Treb and I for help. Ask your life group for help. Ask a parent, ask, just ask for help. If you can't find anybody to help you, ask, ask Trevor I. Just shoot us an email, shoot us a message. My email is brandon at thevineokc.com. Shoot me an email and say, my marriage is struggling, please help. We'll help, okay? But what I am saying is, are you respecting him even when he doesn't deserve it? So like if I was to look at your social media feed, what would I think about your husband? If I was to evaluate uh, all your conversations that you have with your girlfriends or your mom, how would they view your husband? Do you speak about him respectfully or do you disrespect him in public? Please don't do that. Speak about him and treat him in public with respect, even when he doesn't deserve it. Because honestly, uh, he's supposed to love you even when you don't deserve it. And so you're supposed to respect him even when he doesn't deserve it. 
Once again, not an excuse to stay in dysfunction or abuse. Get help. But respect him even when he doesn't deserve it. The reason is, is because when you do that, it sets the stage for him to be able to love you. Because if you disrespect him, you just cut the legs out from under him. And he's just sitting there on the ground. <laughs> he can't even stand up on his own two feet if his, his wife won't respect him. And there's a reason that the Proverbs say it's better to be in the desert than in a house with a contentious wife. Because you can nag the fight right out of your man. You can nag him to where he is. He can't function anymore. And that we learned early on in our marriage that the greatest way for Jenny to get me not to do something was to nag me. And so um, practically, we got this little box, this little uh, whatever, and I got this little heart in it. You do it, whatever you can. Got this little box, and I got this heart, and I was like, how am I supposed to know if what you need me to do is actually important or not? What do I do? How do I do that? Ah, and so uh, she got this little box, and and I got this little box, and put a little heart in it, and when the the heart was on top of the box, there was a note in it. Whatever was on that note, man, I had to do. Whatever was on it. I don't care if it was like, go rob a bank. I'd be like, the bank is robbed. We are going and robbing, done. And I was like, if you put it in the box, I'm going to do it. And so she knew if it was on her heart, don't nag me, put it in the box, put the heart on top, and then I would go do it, and I'd put the heart back in the box. And it, we don't use that anymore because now we just, but it helped. It was like a little physical thing that helped us when we were young and married. So I could know, I'm like, please, anything. How can I know what I'm really supposed to do? And that's one way that you can respect him even when he doesn't deserve it, okay? Two is, do you encourage him? Um, so the wife in this passage has been called to submit to her husband as she submits to the Lord and to respect him. The husband has been called to love you with the immeasurable, perfect, sacrificial love of Jesus. He has been called to love you like Christ loves the church, and he will stand before Christ in all of his magnificent glory, and he will be judged for how he does it. Jesus will ask every husband, did you love the wife that I gave you well? It's terrifying. Please encourage him in the process. Please encourage him. I guarantee you, if you are married, your husband needs some encouragement. Even just a quick, honey, I love you, you're doing a great job. I mean, that's like a, oh, okay, let's go do it. And if you like really, really encourage him, and you can ask him, sit down and say, what do you need me to do to encourage you better? Just like, you're you're two adults. Sit down and talk about it. If you will encourage your man, man, he can wake up early the next day and he can go do darn near anything if he feels like you're behind him. Almost anything, even rob a bank. And so, encourage your man. All right, so this is a profound mystery, right? The reality is that um, Christ has, I'm going to read a couple quotes here from a great book, but Christ has given us marriage as a picture of how he loves the church, which is why I want to, um, there's a book, great book, a lot of you have read by Timothy Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. But the subtitle uh, for that is Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God. Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God. Marriage is hard. It is incredibly complex. We all bring stuff into marriage. We continue to have laws and in-laws and kids and trouble and houses and things break and there's money problems. And goodness gracious, it's hard. It's complex. But I wanted to look at two things. One is this picture of love, and this is really for both the husband and the wife, okay? First quote is this. So we must say to ourselves, husbands and wives, something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, he was in agony, 
And he looked down on us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them and they, that they don't know what they're doing. He loved us, not because we were lovely t- to him, but in order to make us lovely. And that is why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that and then fulfill the promises that you made on your wedding day. Jesus loves you. I'm talking to husbands and wives. He loves you and he gives you everything you need for life and godliness. It is going to require Christ's empowering presence in your life to love your wife well, husbands, to respect your husband and submit to him, wives. It's going to require a power outside of yourself. That is why a marriage can shine the light of the gospel. Not because you're good, but because Jesus is greater. And his love can come in and restore a broken marriage. It can. He can. The second is this. Within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you into. And it excites me. And I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you're taking to his throne. And when we get there, I'm going to look at your magnificence. And I'm going to say, I always knew you could be like this. But I got to glimpse it on earth. But now look at you. Husbands, you have a part in your wife's sanctification. Do you see that? What a glorious responsibility. Wives, you have a part in your husband's sanctification. Do you see that? Enjoy that. What a privilege it is that you get to do that. It is not the ball and chain. That is a lie of the world. The lie of the world is that husbands and wives are just fighting each other, and that's the way it always is, and ah, she's my old lady, and ah, he's my old man. The truth of the gospel is this. Christ died for both of you, and he, in his process of redeeming your lives together, he will show the world how much he loves them. So your marriage is about more than just you. It is about the gospel. And we can take that weight and all of the glory of it and bear it lightly because Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. It is a joy that we get to be filled with the empowering presence of the risen Christ and love our wives and respect our husbands well. And I'm going to end on this one bit. No matter what part your marriage is in, the Lord can redeem it. And I say that and I believe it because it is true. Jesus resurrects people from the dead literally and spiritually, and I've seen him restore marriages that were way long dead and gone because he is the God who gives lives to the dead. He is the God who can restore things. If you are divorced or have been divorced, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. You know, I'm not standing judgment over you. I don't do that. I know that life is hard. We know that life is complex. And we just, we love you and the Lord loves you. And there is just grace and love and embracing arms for all of that, okay? But as you are married, walk in that marriage. And if you're not married yet, you may be thinking, forget this, I am never getting married. Um, (laughs) I'm telling you, it's great. It is great, kind of like going to the gym is great, right? Like you go and you hate it, but then you're like, at the end you're like, oh, I'm stronger. No, just kidding. So it is just, it's great because God made it great. And he made it to, uh, as Luther said, to rub your corners off because um, you, uh, you just live life with another person and they don't allow you to, to stay mean for too long. So uh, let's pray and then we're going to end our time. I want you to respond in worship. Uh, husbands and wives, I want to encourage you, take time this week to sit with each other.
Go on a date. Hubby's, take your wife out for a date. It does not have to be expensive, but do something. Go on a date. Take some time. Set it aside. We have this parent date that's going on. Go out and encourage one another. Go out and um, take time to ask these questions. Ask them of each other, and then uh, lovingly ask the Lord to help you to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and lift these things up to you. Honestly, Lord, it's terrifying. Um, the command to love uh, our wives is, you love the church. I can't do that. And, you know, I'm sitting here to think about a wife saying to respect my husband who does not act respectable all the time. That is impossible. Yeah, you are a God who calls us to do impossible things all the time, but you equip us to do those things. You do not call us to do them on our own. You say that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You resurrect and you redeem and you fill us with your spirit. You equip us with your word. You put us in the body of Christ. You put us in the, put us in the fellowship of believers in a family of God so that we can help one another. Lord, help us to honor the marriages around us. Help us to fight for the marriages around us. Lord, if anyone, anyone here is single, Lord, help them to fight for the marriages that they see. Encourage those people. Lord, I just I lift up these wives and husbands to you. And I pray that your grace would be demonstrated through their lives and in their hearts. I pray that as we respond in worship, that they would be overwhelmed with your love for them, overwhelmed with the grace with which you have, that you have lavished on them, and that they would not just bear some sort of legalistic burden to do things, and that they would not be locked in some kind of bizarre cycle of dysfunction and brokenness, but that they would seek help, that they would cry out to the Lord, and that they would seek help from the body of Christ, and that you would empower them to do that. I pray that you would resurrect and restore all of our marriages, Lord. Make them bright, shining lights of the gospel, cities on a hill that shine light to those around us, that shine redemption to the people in our world, that they could see in our marriages how much you love them and that you sent your son to save them. In his risen name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together as we uh, sing this final song. Lift up your heart, lift up your voices. Ask God to make these changes in your heart that need to happen to direct your path. They may love each other well. Beside me through darkest fur.
I don't know what you brought in here today, uh, but I know the Lord's sending you forth with his word, and so go and do it, and I just, I want to encourage you that it is worth it to fight, and that it is the, the glory on the other side of whatever struggle that you're in, the Lord is already there, and he's empowered you to walk through whatever he has in front of you. Also, if you didn't hear, we're going to Pelican Bay tonight, so walk out there, bring your kids, swim, we're doing a hot dog truck, which is totally not as uh, exciting as marriage, and uh, we're going to swim up at Pelican Bay from, we're going to eat at 6, and the thing opens at 7, so bring your friends, bring your family, come up there, if you have a question, come ask me, and also next Sunday, we're doing a family worship time, because we're going we're gonna to talk to children, the text goes right to kids, and we believe that our kids should be in here listening to it, so um, the littles will be in their rooms, but the elementaries will be in here with us next Sunday, so Bring your kiddos, and we'll have some worksheets and some fun things for them to do so that they uh, don't stab you in the eyes too much, and you can listen to what we have to say, and go in peace.